If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Romans chapter 12? We are going to be, uh, this will be our last message in this series called Living on the Edge, Dare to Experience True Spirituality. And I've been thinking about that, the words that we've had up here on the banner during this series, that uh, that's really what this is about, wanting people to experience the real thing. Not a nominal Christianity, not a casual kind of relationship, but the real thing of what God intends for each one of us. A true spirituality where we know him personally, where we are seeing him at work in our life and in our church, and we're excited about what God is doing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what this series has been about. So today we're going to look at Romans 12, the end of that chapter, beginning at verse 14 through 21, and I'd like to read it for you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this passage of Scripture this morning, it talks about our relationship with the world around us. And Father, you know the challenges that we face, temptations we face, people who would want to see us fall or see the ministry of Christ fail. And Father, we bring all of that to you. And we thank you for the wisdom that you give in your word, that we are not the first ones who have faced those kinds of challenges but all throughout the history of the church, your people have suffered and dealt with opposition and even persecution. And so, Father, would you give us wisdom today as we think about this passage of Scripture and how it applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It can be a shocking truth to discover that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Now, I say that because there are some uh, within Christianity who sometimes give this impression that if you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that all your troubles are going to be solved, and that somehow life is going to be comfortable, and you will be healthy and prosperous and successful. Now, if that were true, we wouldn't even have a passage like this in the Bible that talks about overcoming the evil aimed at you. Now, the fact is that we live in a fallen world, and we see the evidence of sin all around us. We see it in sickness and disease and death, the suffering that people experience. And we see it, and we are sometimes the victims of crime ourselves. Now, there is violence, there's abuse, there are wars, and there are natural disasters, and all of that is a part of our world. But in addition to that, we also have a spiritual enemy, a real enemy, Satan, who doesn't want to see us succeed, who doesn't want to see the church grow or God's kingdom be expanded in any way. 
and he would love to trip us up. And so this one, who is behind all of the evil in our world, loves to see Christians fail. And depending upon where we live in our world, sometimes believers have experienced severe persecution. But in fact, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 to 13, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he's saying, you know, it's not going to get better or easier here. You're going to have evil men that will continue in their evil ways, going from bad to worse in their efforts to hinder the work of God in our world. Now, we live in a part of the world where we are not experiencing persecution that threatens our life like believers in parts of Asia or the Middle East suffer every day. But in our world, it seems that we are experiencing here in America the loss of some of the freedoms that we once enjoyed, the limiting of what we can say and do in the public realm because people feel like we've got to have this wall of separation between the church and state in such a rigid way that Christians should really have no voice in that arena as Christians. And we see those undermining of the Judeo-Christian ethic and values that we once had as our world begins to change. So how do we overcome the evil around us? Well, the answer is to be like Jesus, to follow his example and to put our trust in God and his word. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The Apostle Peter wrote, that to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And he was talking about the suffering of Christ and the way that he dealt with those things that he experienced in his life, and he said that we should follow his example. We should do what Jesus did as we confront the evil around us. So what does that look like? Well, I think that uh, Paul here lays it out very well in this passage in Romans. And when you think about the setting in which he lived, I mean, he is writing to the church in Rome at a time when they are living under the Roman emperor Nero. Nero is one who would start one of those early waves of persecution against the church. And how did they respond to him? Here's what Paul says. Number one, we are to be like Jesus in our speech. Look at verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now those words, bless and curse, perhaps aren't ones that you frequently use in your vocabulary. We may use the word bless when we pray and we ask God to bless someone, but the word curse is not something that we maybe normally use. And so what does that mean? What is Paul talking about here? Well, to bless someone is to wish someone well. It is to pray for them or to even speak well of them. What's interesting to me is that the word here in Greek is the word eulageta, which is the very same word that we get eulogy from. And you think of a eulogy at a funeral service for someone where, uh, what are you doing in a eulogy? You are speaking well of that person as you tell about their life. And so Paul is saying, I want you to eulogize your enemies. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's one of those things. I was trying to envision what it would be like if 
uh, I had lived, say, in Nazi Germany under Hitler, how would I respond? What would I say? How do you speak well of a government that you are absolutely opposed to? I mean, or how do you do that? I think you can pray for them. You can pray that God would change their hearts or change their policies or actions. You could pray for a spirit of repentance. You could do all of those things. But it would be very hard as Christians to speak well of someone in that situation if you totally disagreed with them. And yet I think of Paul, again, living under Nero and writing these words to Christians at that time. To curse on the other side is to call down God's wrath on someone. It's to pray against them or to wish for their disaster, their failing. And again, how does that work? Because when I read in the Psalms, I read some of David's Psalms, what are called the imprecatory Psalms, that are really Psalms asking for God's judgment and for uh, His hand to be at work against His enemies. And I think part of the difference here is not just Old Testament, New Testament, but I think what we need to keep in mind when we look at Romans 12 is that Paul is talking about our personal response here to our enemies and not taking justice into our own hands. Whereas in chapter 13, he is going to talk about the role of government and that the role of government is to establish righteousness and it is to punish evil in our world. And so there's a difference there in terms of our response versus how a government should respond in carrying out God's justice. You see, the natural human response for us when we are mistreated or attacked is to strike back in the same way. You know, somebody got us, boy, we're going to get them. Somebody hits us, we want to hit back. Somebody takes advantage of us, we want to turn that around and get even. But that's not what Jesus taught. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, you have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes His blessing to fall on both the evil and the good. It's an amazing thing about God and His grace and His mercy. And so Jesus says to us, I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to love also your enemies. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it said about Jesus that when they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate when He suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we have been healed. How did Jesus respond to the evil that came to him? He did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So who are our enemies? Who comes to mind when you think of that? And maybe you don't even think of it in that terms. Maybe you think of somebody that's a little difficult 
to be around or somebody that's difficult to live with, but maybe there is someone who has attacked you or hurt you in the past and they come to mind. How do you respond to them? What do you say? You know, I think about this time of year when we have an election coming up and I can't wait for it to be over because I really don't like those commercials that come on all the time. And it's the attack commercials that bother me the most. Those kind of attack ads that go both directions. And what I see happening in American politics is that we tend to demonize the other party as evil. doesn't matter which side you're on. It's like they, they can't give credit to one side or the other. They tend to demonize the other side as though they are totally evil and off the wall. How do you respond to that as a Christian? What would Jesus do? And how would you apply this passage to politics? You know, when I think about that, I ask myself the question, you know, depending again what party you favor, can we bless both President Obama and former President Bush or President Clinton? Can we bless them and pray for them? Can we pray for both Sarah Palin and Nancy Pelosi? And I know for some people to put those names even together in the same sentence is tough, you know, because they're pretty opposed to one another in terms of what they believe or want to see as a vision for a country. But can we pray for them? Can we bless them? I mean, wouldn't it be a remarkable thing if in our race for governor, uh, say Tom Emmer said of Mark Dayton, you know, I believe he is a really good man. And I believe that, that he has good values there, but I disagree with this and this and this. And you just said it like that. You didn't attack the character of the person or vice versa if it was the other way around, whether it's Mark Dayton talking about Tom Horner or whoever, you know, if they could just say, you know, I think these people really want to do an honorable thing to serve our state or serve our nation. And we need to respect that. But let's talk about issues and say, okay, this is where our differences are. It seems like we can't do that today, and sometimes we as Christians get caught up in that as well. What would Jesus do? How would you apply this to politics? We are to be like Jesus in our speech. And secondly, we are to be like Jesus in our compassion. In verse 15, he says, We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to mourn with those who mourn. That requires compassion and empathy on our part. Compassion combines the sorrow for the suffering of others with a desire to help. Compassion is more than just a feeling, but it also moves us to want to act on somebody else's behalf. When we see people that are suffering in our world, we're moved to want to help them in some way. And empathy is the ability to share in another person's feelings and emotions. It's that ability to put yourself in their place and kind of look at the world from their eyes or their life experiences. And the question that is often asked about verses 15 and 16 in this passage is this. Does this apply to my enemies or does this apply to believers in the church? Who is Paul looking at here? 
And I really think the answer is both here. He's not just talking about how we should respond to the world around us in this case, but he is also talking about how we should respond to believers. Both are in mind. In the church, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We do that in the celebrations of a new birth or a wedding or an answer to prayer or some significant event that's happened in your life or my life. And we rejoice and we're excited about that. We also grieve with those who grieve. We come alongside of those that have experienced loss or difficulties or trial. We pray for one another. We show mercy and compassion when we are going through tough times. And all of that is right and it is good in the body of Christ. That's the easy part, if you will. To do that with our enemies? Now that's really radical. That's radical. Are you familiar with the name John Perkins? John Perkins is a black man who lives in the South who started a ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi called Calvary Ministries. It's a ministry of community development reaching out to kind of bridge across the lines of racial barriers and to elevate the poor in his community. Well, John Perkins grew up in the South in Mississippi. When he was a teenager, he went to California, and it was there in California he came to know Christ as his Savior and Lord. He felt God's call in his life to return to Mississippi to begin to preach to his brothers and sisters, to those who were poor, to African Americans living in that part of our country. One day in 1970, there were students who were driving back from a black college. They were in a van and they were driving back. They had been taking part in a civil rights demonstration. And they were stopped by the police and they were arrested. And John Perkins and a couple other black men that night went to the jail to post bond so that they could be released. And what happened that night was shocking. Five deputy sheriffs, along with some of the state police, took John, took the other man who was there, but John they viewed as the leader, and they beat him. They stomped on him, they stomped on his head, they kicked him in the groin, they beat him and abused him that night, and after they were through with him, they threw him in the jail cell. Even though he had done nothing wrong, he was, there wasn't a warrant for his arrest. He had not broken the law in any way. They abused and mistreated him, and they left him for dead in that cell. The students who were there thought that he was either dying or was dead. And John Perkins, through the night, began to come around. And he began to think about what happened to him that evening. And he remembered their faces as he thought about those who had abused him. They were so twisted with hate, it was like looking at white-faced demons. And he said, for the first time, I saw what hate had done to those people. That these policemen were poor, and they saw themselves as failures, and the only thing that they knew to give them a sense of worth was somehow beating us or putting others down. Their racism made them feel like somebody. And when I saw that, I just couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. And I said to God that night, God, if you will get me out of this jail alive, and I really didn't think I would, 
I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. And he said, when God enabled me to forgive my enemies, I found that I was able for the first time to truly love them. I wanted to return good for evil. And that's what John Perkins began to do. His ministry reached out not only to blacks and whites in those communities to bring healing and hope and change. That same compassion that touched the heart of John Perkins is the same compassion that moved Stephen, the first martyr, to pray for his enemies. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Acts chapter 7, verse 60. And it's that same compassion that moved Jesus to say from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He didn't call down a curse on his enemies there. He spoke words of forgiveness from the cross. That's a powerful thing, and that is a challenge to us as well, that when we are the victims of abuse or mistreatment, can we come to that place where we can forgive our enemies and put this in God's hands? Thirdly, we are to be like Jesus in our attitude. Verse 16. Paul says we are to live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. When we think again about Jesus, Jesus identified with the poor and the lowly. He was known as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And in the church, we are to be like Jesus too. We are to have that same kind of open arms to receive those who are hurting, who are coming to experience God's grace and mercy and love in their life. Within the church, Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility we should consider others better than ourselves. And each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're not just to think about our needs or our rights or what's going on in our life, but we're to think about those around us. How can we help? How can we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ? And when we come to church to worship, it doesn't matter what our occupation is. We're not to show preference for one or the other. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so whether someone is a doctor or a nurse or whether someone works in construction or farming or whether someone's a businessman or woman or a clerk or whether someone is even homeless and needy, We are all one in Christ when we come to know Him. And what a beautiful thing it is when in the church, in the body of Christ, we live that out. I ran across this story about a former Chief Justice of the United States, Charles Evans Hughes. He was Chief Justice in the 1930s in that time period and died in 1948 had a pretty remarkable life of service in our country in many different areas of government as well as on the Supreme Court. He was a lifelong member of the Baptist Church. His father had been a Baptist minister. And when he moved to Washington, D.C., he transferred his membership there, and on a particular Sunday morning, their practice was when they welcomed new members, they would invite them to come up to the front of the church to be introduced. 
And on that same day when he was to become a member of this church in Washington, there was a Chinese laundry man whose name was Ah Singh who had moved to Washington from San Francisco to work there. And when they called his name up to become a member of that church, he stood on one side of the pulpit. And then they called up the names of others who were going to be members that day, about a dozen of them. And they all stood on the other side of the pulpit, leaving Ah Singh alone. But when they called Charles Evans Hughes, this man who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and a believer in Christ, he came and he stood by that Chinese laundry man. He came to identify and to associate with those who may be considered some of the least of these in our society, ordinary people, maybe unimportant to the world, but important to God. And his actions that morning sent a message to the congregation. You see, when it comes to our outreach in the community, there is no place for superiority. You know, when we go into the prisons or jails and are involved in ministry there, it's not we are better or we've got this figured out somehow. No, it's the grace of God that has changed our life, and that same grace of God can change their life too. And when we help people through the sharing shop ministry or through our car care ministry, We do that with dignity and respect because that could be us. That could be us who are in need. And when we share the gospel with those who have never heard it before, it's like that old saying about evangelism, that evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. It's the grace of God that has changed us. And so we go with humility And we are called to identify with the least of these in our world and to do that with dignity and respect. And fourth, we are to be like Jesus in our conduct. We see that in verses 17 through 21. Paul writes here, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't be like the world. Don't fall into that kind of response. Check your flesh. And instead, do what Jesus would do. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. I mean, we are to live our lives above reproach. Don't let your conduct destroy your testimony as a Christian. You know, if you're a businessman and you are a, a, you know, people know you as a Christian, then be honest and fair in your dealings or your testimony is going to be undermined or ruined by the way that you conduct yourself in this community. If you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you work in uh, the neighborhoods in our community and you are known as a Christian, then let your conduct match your profession of faith. I think of a minister who had to give up playing basketball when he first went into ministry because every time he stepped back onto the basketball court, he was out there throwing elbows and he was playing about as rough as you could. And uh, it was just a fight for him to do this as a Christian. What did it mean to play hard as a Christian? And he was ruining his testimony on, you know, in ministry by his conduct on the court. If you're a coach in the community, guard your temper, watch your tongue as a Christian. 
And do your coaching in a way that will honor the Lord and bring credit to Him. Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He knows that it is not always possible that there are people who will not accept your graciousness or your desire to meet them and to bring peace to a situation. But he says, for us in the church, go the extra mile. It may not always work. You can't control the response of the other person, but you can do your part to be a peacemaker. Don't take revenge, he says, but leave room for God's wrath. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Respond with kindness, because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And what does that mean? What, what does that expression mean, to heap burning coals on his head? It's not, again, a vengeful thing, but it is an expression meaning perhaps your conduct will bring conviction. Maybe God will use that. Maybe it will bring such conviction that the kindness of God will lead to repentance in his life. Now let me say this too. What Paul is stressing here is that we are not to take matters into our own hands. We are to leave them with God. But that doesn't mean that you let people abuse you and get away with it. That's why we have chapter 13 coming up next. That there is a way to have recourse through the government. There is a way uh, in which God has established things in society so that government or our police are supposed to enforce what is right and good and just. And so there's a way that we can take action to prevent abuse or to prevent those kind of crimes that happen in our society. We're not to do it ourselves. We're to put it in God's hands and take it to the proper authorities. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If I can go back to the story of John Perkins. When he was recovering in a hospital bed, he said, as I lay there, God began to work in my heart. And I saw an image of the cross, the cross on which Christ hung. And I knew what Jesus had suffered, and I knew he understood, and I knew he cared because he had gone through all of it himself. He too was arrested and falsely accused. He too had an unjust trial. He too was beaten, and then he was nailed to a cross and killed like a common criminal. But when he looked at the angry mob that had crucified him, he didn't hate them. He loved them, and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but he forgave. God wouldn't let me escape that. And he showed me that however unjustly I had been treated in my bitterness and hatred, I was just as sinful as those who had beaten me. And I needed forgiveness for my bitterness. And he said, one by one, God brought those people by who had abused me. And I looked into their face and I forgave them. And the load was lifted and he was freed to love even his enemies. And he said, how sweet is God's forgiveness and healing. Who has hurt you the most? And who do you need to forgive? Have you let go of that hurt? Maybe you were a victim of injustice or a victim of abuse in the past. 
Have you brought that to Jesus and let go of that? And said, Jesus, forgive me for my bitterness or for my unforgiveness and my anger. And Father, I want to be whole and I want to let that go. And I pray for your healing in my life. Chip Ingram in his book writes that you are never more like Jesus than when you treat people in a way that they don't deserve. I like that. You are never more like Jesus than when you treat people in a way that they don't deserve. How do we overcome the evil aimed at us? We follow Jesus' example in our speech, in our compassion, in our attitude, and in our conduct. Let's pray. Father, you know our past and you know the hurts that we have experienced. And maybe we've never really dealt with this before and today's the day where you have spoken to us. Father, would you by your grace enable us to let go of the hurts and to say to those individuals in our heart, I forgive you. And I pray for God's grace to be at work in your life. And Father, maybe we're in a situation right now at work or at school that's difficult too. And would you help us to respond to the evil that we have experienced with love and with kindness? And that we pray, Father, that you would use our actions to be a witness for you that perhaps would lead them to repentance. Father, we trust you. We trust your word is true. And I pray that you would give us the power we need to overcome evil with good. Amen.